The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. The scripture reading for this morning is from Titus 3, 1 through 8. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. You may be seated. Thank you, Emily. As I mentioned before, my name is Jared. I'm so glad that you're here. We love to know our people at Restoration Southside, and we want to be known by you. You know us. So, um, If you would, please come by and say hey afterwards. Uh, I'd love to introduce myself to you if we haven't met. We're continuing our study in the book of Titus. Titus is really cool for us. As we mentioned earlier, we're a church plant. And Titus is a book written from one church planter to another church planter as advice. And so obviously there's a lot for us in it. Um, But one of the things that is so beautiful about this is that the... The similarities between us and Titus are so, so obvious. Paul is talking to Titus, who's a church planter in a city that's filled with sin and selfishness, people misbehaving, and he's writing to the Christians in the city of how they should conduct themselves in a city with sin and brokenness and selfishness. And his advice is different than we might think it would be. His advice isn't to shake your finger at those who are sinners or selfish or who are misbehaving, but instead for the Christians themselves to remember who they are. Remember where they came from. Paul is essentially saying that in order to be helpful to the culture and the people around you, you have to have humility if you want to engage in mission. You have to have humility if you want to engage in mission. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Is of what good are the believers to a city? How can they do good by them? Let's pray and ask God to bless our study of His Word this morning. Lord, would You have mercy on me, a sinner? I thank you and I praise you for your word and your Holy Spirit. And I ask 
that in these few moments by your Holy Spirit you would convince us and convict us that you would lift our spirits. You would, by your kindness, humble us so that we can better engage in mission. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. John, would you mind closing that door for me right there? Thank you, sir. I don't love to use the name Brett Favre, but there's a story that I want to tell you that's kind of powerful about Brett Favre at his Hall of Fame night, his induction into the Hall of Fame. You may think a lot of different things when you hear the words Brett Favre, a very famous quarterback for the NFL for a long time. But his speech at the Hall of Fame was this. My dad was my high school football coach. He was the head football coach. So it was the last high school game of my football career in, a, as my, in high school. And although I don't remember how I played the week before, and I don't remember how I played in the last game, what I do remember is sitting outside the coach's office waiting for my father to come out so we could leave. So here's the picture. Favre's dad is the head high school coach, and he is in the office with the other high school coaches, his staff. And Favre has to sit outside waiting for his dad to go home, but he's listening to them into the office talking about him. And what he l learns is, is that he played terribly in the second to last game. And they were discussing how to use him before the last game. So that's the context. And he says this. This is far talking about his dad and the other coaches. It was dark, and I overheard my father talking to the other coaches, and I assume I didn't play well as the previous week only. I didn't play well in the previous week only because of what he said. He said this. I can assure you one thing about my son. He will play better. He will redeem himself. I know my son, he has it in him. Until his Hall of Fame speech, Favre never told anyone that he overheard those comments. He said it used them as fuel, though. Favre says this, I never forgot that statement. And that comment that he made to those other coaches. And I want you to know, Dad, I spent the rest of my career trying to redeem myself, and I hope I succeeded. The rest of my career trying to redeem myself, and I hope I succeeded. I don't know about you, but that makes me sad. That this player would spend his entire professional career in hopes that he could redeem himself from the mistakes of his second to last high school game so that he would have some sense of closure with his dad, that he was actually worthwhile, that he was actually worth the time, worth the investment, that he could redeem myself. And he's left wondering, I hope I succeeded. The reason that I tell you that story is so often in the Christian life, we find ourselves responding to Jesus after we encounter Jesus. But the whole time we're responding to Jesus after we encounter Jesus, we're asking ourselves, am I enough? Have I done enough? I know I'm supposed to be grateful. I know I'm supposed to obey and worship. Have I redeemed myself, God? 
We know what it's like to live under the pressure of feeling like we've got to redeem ourselves. And Paul helps those in Crete who know Jesus to think of it differently. He says our fuel for doing good as Christians is not to redeem ourselves before the Father. Our fuel for doing good as Christians in the world is because we have been redeemed by the Father. We mess up when we think that our good works are somehow paying God back. Somehow an effort to redeem ourselves. Or that our good works are about us in the first place. The the ingredients of grace produce a life of good for other people. And that's what Paul focuses them on. Let's first look at the ingredients of grace. The ingredients of grace, verses 3-7. through Actually, let's start back in 1. Paul is telling the Christians how to behave among those that don't yet know. And listen to what he says. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Remind them to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Paul is telling the Christians how to bless the city of those that don't yet know Christ. And what he's saying is be good to them. Speak evil of no one. Don't fight. Be gentle. In fact, show perfect courtesy toward all people. It's sort of surprising. We would think it's the Christians that they're the important ones. That they're the ones who are at the center of things. And so Paul should be telling the other people that they need to instead submit to the Christians. But that's not what Paul says. He says, you go be gentle and perfectly courteous to all people. You go submit to your authorities to be obedient. You go live this life of generosity to others. Why? For we ourselves were once foolish. For we ourselves were once foolish. He starts with four there. The reason we should be gentle and humble and courteous is because we too at one time. We too at one time. Paul is saying if you want to go and bless those that don't yet know Jesus, you be gentle to them. You be courteous to them. You pour out your good works for them because you too know what it's like to not believe. You too know what it's like to be addicted. You too know what it's like to numb out. You too know what it's like to be unfaithful. You too know what it's like to be impure. You too know what it's like to envy and gossip and slander. He's saying the church... If you're of any good to those who don't yet know, it's because you used to not know. You can empathize with any unbeliever because you know that it's grace that changed you and it's grace that's slowly continuing to change you. It's not something that you've done on your own. So the first ingredient of grace is showing that our own desperate need for we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. 
Brian Chappell tells a story of this famous book by Ray Bradbury, The Tattooed Man. And in this book, there's this older man, sort of creepy older man, and he's trying to convince this younger man that the life with ladies of the night is a good life and that he should engage himself, this younger man, in the life with the ladies of the night. And this younger man, self-righteous as he is, looks at this older creepy man and he says, don't you understand there's a quality, a type of man who is repulsed by prostitutes? And yet as the story goes by, he's wrestling, disgusted with himself because he realizes he too wants a night with them. You're of value to those that don't trust in Jesus because you know what it's like to be tempted and fail. You know what it's like to try hard and then give up. You know what it's like to want to live a holy life and on purpose, late at night, choose sin. It's how we have failed the population that so badly needs to hear grace. All of the brokenness, all of the sin, all of the confusion of our world, and they see the church looking at them going, I would have never done that. I would have never given in to that. I would never think of sexuality like that. I would never think of money like that. I would never think of others like that. And Paul looks at us square in the eye as Christians and says, you were there too once. You were there too once. Grace is what changed you and grace is what will continue to change you. And the only value you are to the unbeliever is that you can get that it's hard to obey. You know what it's like to not care about the law, Christian. You know what it's like to be enslaved to passions, Christian. He's actually giving them this beautiful inroad into the life of an unbeliever, saying whatever it is they've been tempted by, you can say, I get it, man. I get it. Either that particular sin or a thousand different ones of my own. I get it. I know what it's like. I know what it's like to be dominated by lust. I know what it's like to be dominated by pride and envy and gossip and slander. I know what it's like to try and be a good person and fail again and again and again. I know what it's like. Instead, what they hear from us is, how could you have done this? What kind of person would do something like this? What's so the matter with you that you could even possibly think like this? And it's the opposite message that we should be sending. We too know what it's like. Matthew 18. It's one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. And Jesus tells a story about the Pharisee and the publican. I don't know if you remember this. But listen to how he starts the story in verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, it's the publican who went home justified that day. We're only good for the city if we can say to them, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. We know what it's like to doubt. We know what it's like to be discouraged. We know what it's like to be addicted. But we've found something. We've found something that has helped us and it can help you too. But even if you don't agree with us, we'll walk with you. We'll love you. We do not want to be confident of our own righteousness and look down on everyone else. We want to be the kind of church that is postured, God have mercy on me, a sinner. You see, your desperate neediness is what is so helpful to you as you live a life of mission. But not just your need, it's also God's love. Listen to this in verse 4, please. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, Savior, appeared, it's goodness and loving kindness of God. And that's not what people hear. People hear that you should experience your desperate need because if you don't, the Christians and maybe God are going to get you. Even though it says in Romans, it's the kindness of God that leads towards repentance. It says here that even though we hated one another, the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared. It's the goodness and loving kindness that we can teach to people that they can come home no matter what they've done. Because we've done that or something different or something worse. Whatever they've done, they can come home. Why? Because the loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared. One of my sons was caught red-handed in sin a few years ago. And he knew it. And we said, we need you to go back to your room and think about what you've done. And we're going to sit here and decide what discipline we have for you. And for some reason, in that particular moment, he was super convicted. And he started to march back to his room, wailing towards God. And we heard him from the next room praying aloud. My eight-year-old son, praying aloud. And he said, God, I'm so sorry. I'm so bad. I'm so terrible. I'm such a big sinner. God, take your revenge out on me. Revenge out on me. We laughed. And we reminded him that you draw near to God not because he can take his revenge out upon you. You turn to God because he took the wrath out on his son Jesus so that you would never experience a moment of it. We live like that too. We make a mistake 
And we expect God's vengeance. Maybe God won't bless my career. Maybe God won't give me a spouse. Maybe God won't give me a baby. God, you're going to take your revenge out on me. And what it's saying here in the text is that when he sees how bad this situation is with us, the loving kindness of God our Savior appears. God's not begrudgingly pitiful towards you. He's not exasperated and say, well, I guess I'll save him anyway. He delights in you. He delights in you like a father delights in their children. You will never repent. You will never walk humbly. You will never experience the peace of God if you think that He is this begrudging Father with His arms crossed, tapping His foot. Why would you run to somebody like that? If you understand that the peace, the comfort, the kindness of God is what you have waiting for you, then you can always run back. It's not just His posture of love towards you, this kindness and love of God, but it's also the work that He done. Look with me in verse 5. He saved us not because of works we had done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. You were not saved because of righteous works you have done or will do. You were not saved because of righteous works you have done or will do. You were saved by mercy. And if you were saved by mercy, it keeps you open-handed to share that mercy with others. If you were saved by righteous things you have done, you need to hold on to those things to somehow distinguish yourself from the others around you. But he says, you weren't saved by those things in your hands. You were saved by mercy. Not because of righteous things you've done. Friends, stop measuring life by the things, the righteous things you are hoping to get done. That's not why you were saved. You were saved by mercy. The washing and rebirth. That's what he's talking about when he says he saved us not because of righteous works we have done, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He gives us this new mercy that we did not earn because of our righteous works, but because of His mercy. And then, He gives us the Holy Spirit. He points us backwards, looking at how bad we once were, and He points us forwards to looking at the reward that we'll have in heaven. What I want you to do as you struggle with sin, as you set goals and fail those goals, as you fight sin and yet give in to it, as you try to do good things, good habits, and then you look up and a few days later you're not doing it, I want you to stare at the colossal, finished work of Christ who said, it's finished. All that you have to get into heaven, all that you need to have to get into heaven, you already have right now in Christ. 
He saved you not because of righteous works you've done, because of his mercy. How freeing would it be to live by that? Stare at the colossal, unmerited, finished work of Christ and then move forward. Not because you have to, but because you get to. He regenerates us. He gives us a new life. And sometimes we don't focus enough on the new life. Here's what I mean. I mean, in the history, maybe our parents or our parents' parents thought of sin as if sin is don't drink or dance or chew or go with girls that do. And as long as you don't do those three or four things, you're good to go. No, you're not perfect, but you've done the main things. Now, we smirk at that and go, are you kidding me? We have a million things wrong with us. But because there's a million things wrong with us, we kind of are knocked back on our heels and are like, it's barely worth trying. It is barely worth trying. There's something so wrong with us. And he says, that's not it either. You have this new record because of the finished work of Christ, and you have the Holy Spirit in you so you can try again. Except the trying is this positive thing. I get to walk with God. I get to learn. And when I do mess up, I don't have to be afraid. I get to bless others. I get to live for the sake of others. Sometimes when I am personally tempted, I have to remind myself out loud, not only do I have a clean record, but I say this, Holy Spirit, you are inside of me. And because of Jesus, you've forgiven me. You've made me new. And someday I'll be an heir in heaven. I will be reigning in heaven with Christ. And so I don't want to do this and I need your help. Sort of remind ourselves that yes, we have been forgiven and yes, we have the Holy Spirit and that there's good news coming. That's what he's talking about when he says heirs. Reminding you of the past, of your forgiveness. Remind you of the present. That you have the Spirit on your side fighting with you and for you. And that you have a future that you will someday be in heaven. He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When you're in the midst of the battle and it's hard to fight, Remind yourself of what's coming. Remind yourself of what it is that you're fighting for. In my house, Aaron and I decided a long time ago that we weren't going to fight over food with our kids. We weren't going to do that. If you'll take two more bites, I'll do 10 jumping jacks. Or, you know, when, if you'll do this, then we'll do that. We just, it was too many kids and too long a conversation. So here's the deal. They don't have to eat any meal. They don't have to eat anything in front of them. But if they do they get dessert every time without fail. So sometimes when you have seven of us at the table and people are whining about how many vegetables they have or somebody is dry heaving because they have to eat mashed potatoes and you're not sure they're going to finish, all you have to do is go into the freezer and get out the ice cream and a hush falls over the room when you walk in with it. And you sit it on the middle of the table and say, there's dessert for anyone who can finish. And suddenly the room gets quiet. 
and people start dry heaving and choking their mashed potatoes down and they start finishing their vegetables because they can see the reward. The reward is real to them and because it's real to them, they will push through, they will persevere through mashed potatoes. What Christ is giving you is saying, look, the battle's been won. You're going to be with me someday. You're going to reign on the new heavens and the new earth. You're not going to have shame. You're not going to have sin. You're not going to have guilt. You're not going to have addiction. You're going to spend your life worshiping and loving. It's coming for you, so persevere. Persevere. That's what he's offering us, this forgiveness, this presence of the Holy Spirit in the, in the promise of a new life to come. That's why he's saying to these Christians that they're compassionately submitted to their unbelieving, unfaithful government. Instead of feeling superior because they know the truth, they're humbled because they know the truth. Because they understand what the government doesn't understand. It's as if they're saying, you actually want us to follow these heathens? And Paul says, yes. Because I want you to remember how bad you were once. He says, not saved because of righteousness, but go act righteously. Show gentleness to all men is what Stott says. Listen to this. Gordon Fee, a commentator, once wrote this. Good works, especially for the sake of the outside, is the recurring theme of the entire letter. Especially for the sake of the outside. The church doesn't exist to make you feel better. The gospel doesn't exist to make you feel better. The church exists so that those who are on the outside can experience the unmatched grace that we ourselves have experienced. This summer, you'll hear the ice cream truck in your neighborhood, and if you go outside, you'll look, and there'll be screen doors and front doors kicked open as kids sort of wrestle their way to the front of the line because when they hear that music, they go, yes, goodness is here. Can you imagine what it would be like in the city, in the government, at our places of employment, that when they realized that there were Christians here, regardless of whether they agreed with us or disagreed, they thought, yes, there'll be more gentleness, there'll be more humility, there'll be more compassion, there'll be more kindness, because the Christians are here. How different it would be the unbelieving world were so grateful that we were around, not hated that when we were around. When you want to know if you're experiencing Christian mature, maturity, if you want to know if you're experiencing Christian maturity, do you know and live out of the fact that you were not saved for yourself? C.S. Lewis says it this way, and we'll close here, friends. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. 
If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. Friends, what Paul is saying to the church in the middle of an unbelieving world, go act as if you love your neighbor. You too know how bad you once were, how hard it still is. So go and love them in humility. Do not bother wasting time wondering whether or not you act, you love your neighbor, instead act as if you did. What Paul is saying to the Christians and what I'm saying to you is that grace has done good in you. You know that. You know that it's softened your heart, that it's caused you to say sorry quicker, that it's caused you to feel loved and forgiven and accepted. It's caused you to be kinder and more humble. Of course, grace has done good in you. Let's make it our prayer now that grace does good through you. Let's pray. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? Those of us that have encountered Christ know that grace has done something good in us. Humble us, Lord, so that we can ensure that grace does something good through us. We love you, and we ask that you would make this church plant humble and existing only for the sake of those who don't yet know. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.